Revelation chapter 19. By God's grace, I hope to complete this chapter today, and then we will have but three chapters left before we finish our study in this book. We started this book over a year and a half ago, I believe it was September, and uh, it's been a joy for a long time, and it's provided for us a long look at Jesus Christ, because this book is chiefly about Him and how He will come one day and reclaim the earth. So today, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we consider Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, let's consider the conquering King of Kings. The conquering King of Kings. Let's pray. Father, as we once again have the privilege of looking at your word, may you encourage and strengthen your people as they come to understand it rightly or are reminded of what they have rightly learned. Father, we ask that these truths would be pressed upon our heart and they would indeed lead the image of your Son upon us so that we would bring glory to him. Father, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The problem of modern cartoons is that they aren't like the cartoons when I was a child. Of course, we older folks are always looking back romantically at yesteryear. But one of the components of the stories of years gone by is that good triumphs over evil. For example, the G.I. Joes fought against Cobra Commander, and the Transformers fought against the Decepticons. You see, the forces of good and evil were clearly delineated, and good triumphed, and that's what made the cartoons quite satisfying. Well, these stories that strike a chord in our hearts do so because we realize that things aren't as they should be in the world. Ever since the curse, man's lot has been hard. Each one is a sinner living in a sinful world. But in the fullness of time, God provided a Savior to rid us of our sin. Yet, much evil remains around us and even within us. So we have this feeling in our hearts that cries, When will the long night be over and the day dawn? Well, you know that the Christian faith teaches that good will indeed triumph over evil. Even from the very opening pages of the Scriptures, we see there will be victory that will come by the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head, Genesis 3, verse 15. But now in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it discloses to us how Christ will achieve that final victory. It tells us who will enact the Father's will so that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And it does so in a fashion that the churches of Asia Minor are instructed how to overcome their own sin by God's grace and for his sake. So as we turn to Revelation 19, the climax of the story of this book of Revelation, we come to a wonderful part, a part that I've anticipated personally for a long time. But building up to it, we began in the first chapters of this book with the sight of the glorified Christ who then spoke to the churches. 
And then we saw the sight of Christ unsealing the scroll, and thereby he enacted a series of judgments that grew worse and worse. And in the midst of those judgments, we learned all those who opposed Christ, who refused to repent and receive mercy. Instead of come to the Lord, the whole world was duped into worshiping the beast, the Antichrist, and receiving his mark. And for all Christ did in turning the screws of judgment upon the earth, the people of earth didn't repent. It established thereby they're guilty. So then Christ himself will come in his glory. That's the stuff of chapter 19. And in anticipation for that, Heaven erupts in a hallelujah chorus. That's what we saw last week in verses 1 through 10. So read with me verse 1, 3, 4, and 6, where it says, After these things I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Verse 3, once more they cried, Hallelujah! Verse 4, the 24 elders and four living creatures said, Amen. Hallelujah. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. The point is they are singing Hallelujah because evil will reign no more. The Almighty will reign. So heaven sings in praise of God in anticipation for the great climax of Christ coming to earth to reclaim it as his rightful possession, Christ is going to take what is his. So we see in the second half of this chapter, verses 11 through 21, that Christ the King will conquer. He will conquer when he comes, when he comes again at that time. It will not be with open arms. It will not be to start a party. As we look at the middle of verse 15, When he comes, it will be to strike down the nations. What will happen when Jesus comes is not rated G. Yet for all the glorification of blood and guts in modern movies, these verses aren't what one might expect. There is, at the beginning of them, a prolonged description of Jesus Christ, followed by an invitation to birds, and then a battle report. And each one of these sections is set off by the phrase, and I saw. For the sake of the outline, I'm going to combine these two second points into one point. So there's two points today. Two points. Christ the King will be the conqueror. And secondly, Christ the King will conquer his enemies. This passage about the future climactic conflict is going to begin with the description of Jesus. And you might wonder why. I mean, perhaps you've seen a boxing match where you hear that the contestants are announced. But what we have here is a very long description. We might think, I like action. Well, you might want to jump from 11 to 19 and skip a whole lot in the middle. Because what we have is a long description of Christ that tells us why he will win. His identity is the key to his victory. We learned that back in chapter 17, verse 14, where it said this, The Lamb will conquer them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. So we read in the midst of chapter 19, verse 16, at the end, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who He is guarantees His victory, separates Him from anyone else. So verses 11 through 16, Christ the King will be 
a conqueror. And there's one image that's repeated three times in this passage that drives home this point of conquest. We see it in verse 11 first. Verse 11 says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it. The old song said, King Jesus rides a milk-white horse. Now, some of us may be excited to see horses. Other people may be skeptical about horses, but we must not miss the point of why Jesus is here sitting on a white horse. I want you to recall the first horse of the sealed judgments back in chapter 6. You remember the color of the horse, children? What color was the horse who came out in the first sealed judgment? It was white, followed by a red horse, then a black horse, then a pale horse. The first horse, it said of the one who rode on that horse, he came out conquering and to conquer. So in Revelation chapter 6, the Antichrist conquered for a time, but here in Revelation 19, the true Christ will conquer for all time. But the image there is of conquest. Let's consider the rest of what verses 11 through 16 tell us. And I must say, this is quite a hodgepodge. Commentators have tried to group these things together in ways that I just didn't see very well, so I had to figure out something on my own. So in the words of Revelation 5, Christ is worthy. He alone is able to reclaim the earth. And as Christ opens judgment after judgment upon the earth and earth dwellers, heaven sings, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So these verses are showing us that Christ possesses the right to reclaim the earth. Who he is shows he has the right to reclaim the earth. We're not to wonder if Christ ought to do this. He's the only one who ought to do this because of who he is. Look at verse 16 where we see that Christ is the absolute sovereign. Verse 16, both 16 and 12 I should say, it says, On his heads were many diadems. The diadem is the crown of royalty. It's a symbol of authority. It's different than the victor's crown, the one who wins the race. He has many diadems. Verse 16, on his robe, even on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, kings and lords, those are sovereigns. Those are powers and authorities. Christ is the absolute sovereign. He's the almighty. There's no one above him. No one tells him what to do. He does as he pleases. Now, that sounds really different from us. Because people rightly tell us to do things all the time, make our beds, pay our taxes. No one is higher and greater than he is. He's the absolute sovereign. Verse 11, we realize that Christ is absolutely dependable. Verse 11 says, on the one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. That tells us that Christ is not a disappointment. We've had a lot of kings and monarchs and dictators and presidents through the years who have promised one thing and done another, and they've been a great disappointment. But there will be no disappointment with Jesus Christ. What he says is true to reality, and he's always completely trustworthy. And that's the best kind of person to have in charge. Verse 12, we learn that Christ is all-knowing. It says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. His eyes are their own light in them. He beholds all things, even the things that are hidden in each and every one of our hearts. That is to say that nothing escapes him. 
Young people, sometimes you run to the refrigerator and try to sneak a snack and no one notices. Mom and dad may do that too. But when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus Christ, there's nothing that is unknown to him. He knows everything about every man. So that means he doesn't have to discover anything. He doesn't need to be corrected about anything that he newly learned because he'd been misinformed. He knows everything. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And Christ is infinite. Verse 12, it says, He has a name written that no one knows but himself. What's the name? I don't know. It's unknown. It's beyond us. That's the point. We may rightly feel at times that we can grasp some truths about the doctrine of Christ, but there are some things about him that are just beyond our understanding. They're out of our reach, they're out of our control. God is so much greater than us. Christ is so much greater than us. We learn in verse 13 that Christ is the expression of God. Verse 13 says, The name by which he's called is the Word of God. You heard it this morning, John 1. We read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the Word. And you know that a word is an expression of a thought. So Christ the Word is the expression of God Himself. And to know Christ is to know the Father. We see that repeated in the Gospel of John. So the one who possesses the right to reclaim the earth is not a mere man. It's not another Alexander the Great who comes and tries to conquer. No, this is the God-man. This is Christ the King, the one who alone is worthy. Not only does he have the right to reclaim the earth, but he is ready to reclaim the earth. He's prepared to fight those of the earth. This is the second way I can, under, I can understand these descriptions. He's prepared to fight. We know that from his posture. He rides a horse. And the idea here is he's pictured as a warrior who's riding in the battle. He's not coming in peace. He's coming to fight. We see that from is riding a horse. Secondly, we see he has a sharp sword. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You know that a sword is a symbol of authority over life and death. We read in Romans chapter 13 that the government holds the power of the sword. It wields the sword. So we read of Christ's sword here, and it is by his sword that he will gain the victory over his enemies. You might say, well, what kind of sword does he have? What is this sword? Well, let me read for you a couple of passages, and this may help us understand what is that sword that he has. Isaiah 49, verse 2 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Isaiah eleven four says, With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. In Second Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You know, for years, people have fought with swords to gain the victory, but it seems to be that Christ one day will come and he will but speak, and he will overcome his foes. You have to recall that Jesus Christ has the power to speak things into existence, 
as he did in creation. And so one day, by his word, he will take life away. That just shows us how powerful God's word is. There's a psalm that you ought to have in the margin just to remind yourself of how powerful his word is. It's Psalm chapter 29. This is where it says, beginning in verse 3, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Siren like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. I was trying to explain this to someone yesterday because I think they've been taken with a whole lot of false teaching. Because many people today believe from what is taught at Christian churches that we are gods and we can speak things into existence. We cannot speak things into existence. God can create out of nothing. We cannot do that. We can just push together some things that he's created. You can't go outside today and talk to a tree and it will fall before you. But he can. That's how powerful his word is. One day he will use those powerful words to slay the wicked. He comes riding a horse. He comes with a sword. He comes with an army. Look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, where are the armies? Well, these must be angels. Jesus said, man comes in glory with all the angels. The angels like Gabriel and Michael, the cherubim, the seraphim, and all the heavenly hosts. This is an army like no other army. We need to get rid of that Clarence picture of what an angel is from It's a Wonderful Life. Angels are warriors, and they are coming behind Christ. But this army may also include the saints. It says that they are clothed in fine linen, white and pure. And that's like the description of the bride in verse 8. We also know from chapter 17, verse 14, this, that the world will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will conquer them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are faithful and called and chosen. And those terms of being faithful and called and chosen, those are descriptions of God's people. So it seems that the armies of Christ are going to be both God's people and His angels. So that shows us that Christ is he's ready to fight. And we see how he is clothed. It says he has a red robe. Look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The question is, whose blood? His own blood or his foes? Again, let me read for you from Isaiah. Isaiah 63, 1-4 says this. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. 
for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So it seems to be that the blood that is on his robe is the blood of his foes. Look, obviously the question arises, how is it that his robe is red before he has gone to battle? Well, this isn't the first time that Christ has fought for his people. It's not the first time he has struck down those who opposed him. He's judged individuals and cities and nations long before this, as we read in the Old Testament. So now we see Christ come robed for battle. Then we learn his disposition, verse 15. He's furious. Verse 15, he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You know from the cross-reference that this is a quotation from Psalm 2, verse 9, where it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what Christ is going to do. You say, what is this like? It's like playing baseball with a coffee mug. Christ is not happy with those who oppose him. He's not happy with those who refuse to repent, who won't turn to him for mercy. So he is going to pour out the wrath of God upon them. And here's a point that we need to let fall upon our hearts. He's going to do it like a God. Consider who we're dealing with. It says the Almighty. Compare that to even the weakest of men who can cause another man a great deal of suffering. How much more can the Almighty Son of God do? And he pours out his wrath. He is furious, and he will judge in righteousness. Look at verse 11. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His fury is not out of line. Given that people have sinned against him, it is befitting that he is angry with them because Christ judges people according to their works. He deals with sin. He refuses to dismiss the sin of those who will not repent. And with that in mind... Consider Christ's word to the church of Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 16. Christ said to the church, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So it would seem that Revelation 19 is meant to make people in churches very serious about repentance. There is no safety for those who are unrepentant in the local church. And just so we're all aware, repentance is turning away from sin to God. It's giving God glory by confessing wrongdoing in the light of God's perfect righteousness. And this is a huge point, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. Given how Christ speaks to this church of Pergamum, In this language of Revelation 19, I ask you, do you keep short sin accounts with God? Or do you suppress conviction and sear your conscience instead? It seems that we live in a day when people salve their consciences by calling out the wrongdoings of others. Relative righteousness is the only righteousness that people prize today. That's not good. So I ask you to reflect on whether or not you're content to call out the wrongs of others before the world 
but not your own wrongs before God. You see, Revelation 19 is truly a hallelujah chorus, but for those in the church who will not repent, this is a hollow hallelujah. It's hollow like when we take the bread and the cup at the Lord's Supper, but refuse to give up sin and allow the Lord to search our hearts. It's hollow. But all those who confess and forsake their sin, they can truly sing hallelujah. They can rejoice in this day because they're not hiding their sin, even as we don't hide our sin when we go to the Lord's table. And obviously, this is what Christ desires. One day, Christ will return as the conquering king, and he possesses the right to the earth, and he's ready to fight those of the earth. And when he comes, we'll see secondly this morning, verses 17 through 21, that Christ the king will conquer his enemies. Christ the king will conquer his enemies. He rides on a white horse as a conqueror, wielding a sharp sword by which he will conquer. The one image is sitting on a horse. The second is slaying with a sword. But before we can get to the action of the battle, it's again delayed. And it's going to heighten our anticipation of this victory. Verses 17 and 18, then we see that earth's defeat is expected. The birds are called to eat. Look at this, verse 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. These verses describe a meal and a menu. This is the great supper of God. What's the point of this meal and this menu? On July 21st, 1861, the North and the South met in the first land battle of the U.S. Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run. And the North thought that they would win the battle easily and quickly. Therefore, many of the civilians from Washington rode down to Centerville, Virginia to watch the battle. They were called the picnickers, but things didn't go as planned. And the picnickers had to retreat. In the great final conflict, those watching will not retreat because Christ's victory is inevitable. And in one of the most horrific images available, the birds are going to gather for this battle. I just want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to be one of those who gathers to war against Christ and to see the flocks and flocks of birds come. Even as all the animals came to Noah and went onto the ark, to see hordes and hordes of birds come, ready to feast on you. A horrific image. These birds are not there for entertainment. They're there to eat. And they're evidence that earth's defeat is about to happen. It's expected. And earth's defeat is going to be effortless because Christ is going to slay with the sword. The conflict that ensues comes as the kings gather to war against Christ. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So, that's like the beginning of the battle scene. And the battle happens between verses 19 and verse 20. In that period, we don't see anything, but what we see instead 
is simply the battle report of who is captured and who is the carnage of the battle. So look at verse 20. The battle results in capture. Verse 20 says the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So we know that the Antichrist and the false prophet led astray the nations against God. And Christ is going to permanently deal with them. There isn't going to be a temporary stay in the fires of hell followed by a judgment. No, instead they're going to go immediately to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Battle is also going to result in carnage. Verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We read that Christ was accompanied by an army, yet he fights by himself. He does all the work. And all those who fought against him that day die. They die to one day be raised again to stand before him and to be judged by him. And this future battle is the climax of this book of Revelation. You see, until this point, it would seem that the world had its day, the long, dark night of sin, because the world loved evil and they refused to repent. But we see that Christ holds out both judgment and mercy in those last years before His coming. But one day He will come and return, and the hallelujah chorus of the Almighty reigning will be fulfilled in the earth, because all the foes will be defeated. And even as this book began with a sight of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, which was a reason for the churches to take Christ's words seriously. So here in chapter 19, at the climax of this book, we see a sight of Christ and what He will do that points each one of us to take Him seriously. Father, we ask that You would be gracious to us and allow us to have a great reverence and fear for Jesus Christ. We are amazed by what will happen one day to all who oppose him. But may that motivate us to be rightly related to him before he comes. And to not hide our sin, but instead be those who turn away from sin and run to you. We pray for that even as we have this opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper and rejoice in the forgiveness of sins accomplished through Jesus Christ. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.